this is Michelle, and welcome back to Four of a Kind Podcast. This podcast is for all those out there, just like us, trying to figure out how to take on the next part of their careers. So join us and our exciting guests as we discuss navigating our jobs, entrepreneurship, and all the ups and downs along the way. So today, Michelle and I are very excited to be joined by another awesome guest. Uh, We have talked a lot on this podcast about our individual experiences across the corporate world, venture capital, even startups and consulting, etc. And today, our guest has experience across it all. So he's like a one in a kind podcast, (laughs) I guess (laughs) we might say. Okay, bad joke. Anyway, so welcome, Pat DePeters, to our episode. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So not to state the obvious, but uh, of the four hosts, we, we do like to talk about our perspectives as, you know, women in the business world. However, we also know that everyone has a slightly different path, a unique road that they tend to take, and it's helpful to hear from a lot of different people. So Pat, you have the privilege of being our first male guest on the pod. Mm-hmm. Welcome and congratulations. Uh, thank you. What, a, what an honor. I look forward to my, uh, my plaque. Yes, it is an honor. Well, anyway, other than that, not much different about this conversation today in terms of digging into Pat and his career, and I'm sure all the good advice he has for our listeners. So before we get too far down that road, I just want to formally introduce Pat. So Pat is the founder and CEO of Owl Ridge Group, a boutique consultancy and venture investment company working with startup and growth stage companies. Prior to founding Owl Ridge Group, Pat was the CFO of several startup companies, including Bondit Media Capital, a specialty lender to film and media industry, and Buffalo 8, a media production company. And Pat started his career in investment banking, working for MUFG in New York and in London. Uh, So one more thing before we get started, just want to say thank you to our mutual friend, Will, for introducing and suggesting Pat as a guest for the podcast. I think, and I think well, we talked about this. Hat will introduce us, but we're pretty sure we've met before or crossed paths multiple times at Fourth of July parties or mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> something think, along the way. I think so. No, it's 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 great to be reconnected. We'll say that reconnected, <laughs> reintroducing us. Thank you, Will. So just to get started, uh, Pat, do you mind if we dive a little bit more into your career path? You've had a lot of different experiences across um, various industries and types of companies. Let's just start there. Sure. Yeah. So I basically, I think I have had kind of a winding career so far. All the different pieces are starting to kind of congeal together in a way that that seems to make sense. But I, I will say, you know, I started my career on Wall Street, and I and I and I started actually at an interesting time because when I graduated uh, in 2010, the world was still reeling from a financial crisis. So the idea of joining a, a large investment bank was was fairly, I guess, I don't know if unpopular is the right word, but it might have been at least rare. It was hard to join an investment bank. Um, and it, and it might not have been that smart either. There were a lot of banks at the time that were fairly unhealthy and going through all kinds of restructurings and stuff. And so I was actually really lucky to join a large, uh, a very large, in fact, a top five bank in the world that actually happened to be healthy. And so MUFG was a key player actually in the crisis from the other side of the table. So they actually invested 
$9 billion into Morgan Stanley because their balance sheet was so sound. And I joined a group that was essentially key to the firm from the highest levels of, of both companies because it was the idea that the investment was more than just a financial investment. It was meant to be a strategic one. And so my group was an M&A and leverage finance team that was meant to leverage the balance sheet of MUFG with the M&A franchise of Morgan Stanley. And so from day one, I was basically drinking from a fire hose as an analyst, coming up the learning curve of global finance. And uh, I think, you know, all the things you might associate with the earliest days of investment banking were part of my part of my experience. So for three years in New York, I was becoming uh, more and more interested in, in finance and getting access to kind of essentially front page of the paper type transactions. And, and I was really enjoying it. At around my two or three year mark, I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And the normal trajectory for a lot of people is uh, is actually to leave investment banking. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity to stay in investment banking and, and move abroad. So I was offered the opportunity to move to London and continue to grow the platform that we were building out in New York and make it more global for both the, both the two banks. And so it was an amazing opportunity, but I, I remember pausing for a moment and thinking, uh, is this an opportunity that I'm taking because it's there or is it an opportunity I'm taking because it matches what I want to do? And so I weighed the pros and cons and I basically said, I want to take it. Um, I knew at a minimum I would get global experience and, and the opportunity to live abroad was obviously really compelling. I took it and it was set to be a year of a stint abroad and it ended up being a year and then, and then some. I was actually offered a permanent position in London. But all along the way, um, I, I had this inner sort of angst or maybe cognitive dissonance about like, am I doing what I what I really want to do or am I on this ladder that I don't really know necessarily what wall it's up against? And I, and I remember pausing and thinking very carefully about that. And before I went to London, I had written my parents a letter and said that um, I'm going to take this job and I'm really excited about it and I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity. But... I also know that I'd like to be an entrepreneur one day because my parents were entrepreneurs and the people I looked up to growing up were entrepreneurs. And so I remember saying, asking them to basically hold me accountable and not let me get wrapped up into a, a career that would be you know, 15, 20 or 30 years on before I realized what I really wanted to do. So what that ended up leading to was that I started thinking about becoming an entrepreneur while I was in London and actually doing something very similar to what you what you ladies are doing, which is interviewing entrepreneurs and trying to figure out what uh, other folks are, are out there doing. And it ended up leading to my my first job in a startup, which was the to, to join the CFO of a, a specialty lending company in L.A. called Bondit Media Capital. So that was my first foray into into startup world. And it was uh, something that was, you know, there's a little bit of inertia that sometimes happens when you get into a career track or you're with a big company that's sometimes stable. And there are a lot of good things that are keeping you there. It's really hard to think about putting that all to the, to the side and actually leaving it. But I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do that. So it wasn't the stench of Zuccotti Park during the Occupy Wall Street that kind of mm -hmm. drove you away from both New York and the banking industry. Yeah, no, it was it wasn't that. I will I will say. I mean, I always felt that. Yeah, I mean, l l I was in Midtown, so I guess I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> oh, lucky you! I worked <laughs> in the building right next to it, and there were a lot of zombie <laughs> marches. And um, yeah, anyway, we're getting <laughs> sidetracked. Uh, no, that's really cool that you have that you're part of a family of entrepreneurs who hold you accountable to the goals that, that you have set out for yourself. It is. I think it was uh, really important. You know, I looked up to my 
my dad was uh, an entrepreneur in, in Connecticut. And I, I think just growing up around that made me not only like really value that experience, but it, like look up to it and realize that I wanted to emulate it and to do a similar thing. I think there's something to say for people who go out on a limb and to, to, that take risks and then create something out of it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but almost always um, there's a good, at a minimum, there's a good story. And, and ideally, it allows you to be the architect of your own life, as opposed to sometimes you get pulled into running uh, someone else's vision. And it's really important to, to think like an entrepreneur, even if you are working for a huge company, to think like an entrepreneur and ultimately realize that um, you can control your destiny to some extent. I think that's a really great point. You said something earlier along the lines of you were thinking about, is this an opportunity that I want to take just because it's there or because it's something I really want to do? And I think that to me resonated because that's a question that I think people come across all the time, especially after your first job. You know, you go in and when you're doing that entry level stuff, look, you're learning a lot, but a lot of times you're ready to take on the next thing and it can be hard to to really feel like you have the time or the, the mental space to think about the career as opposed to just, okay, I got to get to the next step here. And yeah. in the sense that that's advice, I think that's a really good way to think through some of this stuff. And I would curious your opinion. I mean, obviously you you built a really valuable skill set during your time in finance and in banking in particular. So when you were thinking through that, what were the things that you were kind of checking off your list about what you want to do versus the next step because you had experience with big deals across a global portfolio and you know learning a ton on the job in a time of crisis to some extent where those are always well while, while they're tough they're great learning opportunities so what were one of those things that you thought about that let you know that it was gotten the things you needed out of that job yeah so i think what you said there at the end is is um is actually really important it's the early let's say eight to ten years of someone's career is often best served as an apprentice because um you sort of have to figure out the way the world works right i mean there are there are a few entrepreneurs that maybe skip that step and they just and then they're so innovative that it doesn't really matter and that's fine but i think you can actually be maybe more effective if you figure out the rules of the road and so for me, my, my time in investment banking, I think I was quite clear from the earliest time there uh, that I was going to learn a skill set that, that was transferable. And that was the, one of the key things that I kept thinking about in terms of these early, let's say, the first five years. Am I developing a skill set here that I can bring to become an entrepreneur, to, be, to run a startup, to, you know, for a time I was thinking about working for, you know, NGOs and nonprofits and stuff. And I think the reality is, the skill sets are very transferable, uh, but don't transfer the skill until you're a master at it to some degree, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to have every answer, but it, it would be, it's amazing. It really is amazing to show up in a startup, particularly in a really early stage one with a skill set that's world-class, let's say, because not only does it give you the confidence to, to make things happen, it gives you the confidence to, to add value and to, to basically build from that in a way that gives you a leg up compared to others that haven't had that experience and exposure. Um, so for me, it was like an investment banking as a, as a practical example. It's like financial modeling and, and analysis and detail oriented um, strategic discussions, all that kind of stuff. I used to do day in and day out in investment banking. And it's exactly what I did on the very first day of my job as a CFO. It was like, OK, well, I'm going to go to what I know and focus on what I've been doing for the last five years as a starting point and build from there. 
And so for me, it was like, am I becoming a master at these key skills? And when the learning curve starts to, to top out, that's when I started thinking very carefully about what's next, as opposed to being frustrated in the early days of learning a skill and thinking, oh, this doesn't work, I, I need to leave. If you see value in that skill being transferred, then just get really, really good at it and then figure out a way to pivot it into something that better matches your, your dreams or ambitions. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, I, I have a lot of, I work with a lot of people in various stages in their career and it's a little bit of a maturity thing where to where you can be self-reflective enough to know when your skill set is at a mastery level as opposed to, I think I'm really good, but I'm a sophomore. I'm a wise fool right now. Um, how did, how would you advise our listeners to kind of figure that out? Because it, it can be a range, but you have to be comfortable enough to move on to the next skill set or the next role. Yeah, I think um, for me, one of the key, I guess, criterion I used for whether or not I had mastery was whether I could teach other people. So if I was training analysts below me uh, or interns or associates or who, who like new people that joined the firm or I was being called on as a expert in some aspect, uh, then, then for me, that meant maybe I wasn't the best in the world, but I was pretty good, good enough to test my own understanding. I think the best way to test your own understanding is to teach it. it. It really is. I mean, you think you know something and then if you can't explain it clearly to people that maybe aren't as familiar with it, then you, you're not a master yet. And so I think that's that, that was a key thing for me. But I also think it's like not all skill sets are, are necessarily created equal. I mean, not everyone is great at everything that, that, that comes with a, a certain job description. You have to figure out, well, if the job I'm doing now has eight or 10 skills, to the top five that I think are most important to this, am I really getting A pluses across the board on them? And until you are, you have to think about whether it's because it's just not a right match what you're doing, or if it's because you haven't given, you haven't put in enough time yet and learn from the people above you that have, that are the masters to basically have that really formative apprenticeship experience. I think it's, it's absolutely key. And then, and then you pay it forward. And then you, as I say, you teach the people that are, that are new, just like you were at one point. It sounds like you have a very robust skill set um, that works very well in, in this entrepreneurial environment. Were there any other areas where you're like, wow, like I learned so much because I didn't realize that this particular skill set is needed? Or were there any surprises that, you know, despite working on honing all these skills to make you ready for this role in, in the startup world? Yeah, I think... Um... The, well, the first thing I, I realized in startup world in terms of like the transition from a big company to a small one and thinking about like where the gaps were and stuff is that there are a lot of gaps. I mean, the reality is, is that startup world, particularly an early one where you're joining a small team that is just getting started. And, and for me, that was true at, at Bondit and the sister company, Buffalo 8. It was an early team, like really small. We had a, a handful of people that were building on a, a dream. And so you start looking at your skill sets and realizing like you don't have all the answers. You haven't done. So for example, when I was brought on as the CFO of Bondit, it was like there was no CFO before me. And so there was no playbook. And so not only did I have a gap in skills from to getting from corporate America to startup world, it was like the startup itself had you know, a lot of question, maybe more question marks than answers. And so when I think about the skills that helped me navigate that, it wasn't so much like one or two things that I leaned on especially heavily. It was much more about almost like a liberal arts approach to your career, where if you're open-minded and able to self-learn, self-motivate, 
to find the answers that are out there. And if you can't find them, if you, if you can't find them for yourself, you need to be able to find the people that have them. So it's this self-awareness, as you say, around the idea of like not having all the answers. Uh, so as a practical example, as the CFO, you know, I was managing things like HR, which I knew nothing about, things like legal, which I, I had worked on legal transactions and stuff, but I was not really in the position of calling the shots on legal transactions in the way that I was as a startup uh, principal. Compliance, uh, you know, the company that we ran in, in, in LA was a, it was in a regulated industry. So I had to learn about, you know, California laws around this regulated industry. And, and the thing about it was even the experts sometimes didn't have all the right answers. And so it ended up being this, you have to be flexible enough to almost like research what's out there in the world and then ultimately synthesize your own understanding and then make a decision. So it's much more about being a, a flexible learner and a, an adaptive one. I guess the buzzword that um, comes to mind is grit. Like you have to be able to you know, fail a lot and then learn from those failings and, and get through it to perse- persevere to, to a better outcome. That's great advice. Um, one of the things you mentioned in terms of the skill set, the transferable skills is interesting because there's this layer of more like functional skills that I think you can really hone and transfer and gives you a starting point for the next job. But then there's this other layer of skills in terms of just having experience of being in a business, being in a company, decision making and things along those lines that aren't, can you fill out this spreadsheet properly? Can you get to the right answer? The answer is going to be the number five. Can you get here? I mean, from my experience, I surprised myself in some respects at how transferable some of those non-technical skills are. Or that now that I say it out loud, it like sounds pretty obvious, but I think I didn't give myself enough credit for having those more management style skills that are easier to transfer maybe across industries or across size of company. Obviously, there's some things that are different between a big company and a startup. But I think in terms of learning how to be adaptive and then learning how to learn how to ask people for help, like a lot of those things that you can then take and put in any environment. I I don't think that was really a question. That was more of a comment. Um, (laughs) I do have one question just before we get too much further down the path of your career, because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. But can you talk a little bit about the transition from financial services to film and media industry? You did a you did a big industry switch, not just a, a company switch. So what was this like a passion that you're you were able to fulfill or? Yeah, so that was not uh, planned in any in any meaningful way uh, in the sense of, you know, I wasn't uh, like a cinephile that was that was really dying to get into into entertainment or into into Hollywood. Uh, it was more about the broader opportunity. So um, taking a step back into like how I found it or it found me, basically, I uh, was was in London. And as I was saying before, I was out there chatting with folks that went to my high school and my my college and neighbors and friends and all these people that were out there, you know, as entrepreneurs building companies. And I came across a colleague of mine from high school who was who had just started about six months prior a uh, the company called Bondit, which uh, was a finance company in film and media. So I had this neat opportunity to basically deliver value as a finance expert, not necessarily a film and media expert. For me, that the move was more around the opportunity to be the CFO of a company that 
uh, was financially oriented and therefore would would uh, would lean quite heavily on the fi- the CFO function as opposed to some startups simply don't need CFOs because they're not really financially driven or they're not quite at a certain stage. But for us, it was like it was key to the strategy of of the company's DNA was to, was to be a finance driven company with a balance sheet. You know, making that transition for me, I, you know, frankly, I was intrigued by film and entertainment. I think just like anyone else, I, I, I think it's there's a certain sexiness to it, but I didn't know much about it. In fact, I had never been to L.A. I had never been on a film set. I had never been to a premiere. And so I came up the learning curve of the industry after the fact that I, you know, joined a, as an operator. Yeah. What's the priority in the next role? And then there might be some details in there that surprise you or are a little different than you might have expected up front, but you're you're going to go out and get that headline experience. And then, you know, you learn about an industry along the way and either you're, wow, this is actually really interesting and exciting and I love it. Or, hey, I'm in this industry, but it opened my eyes to this other thing. And I can think about that for the next job. So you don't have to do, you don't have to pivot all those features at once. And I, and I also think I, I never really had trepidation about learning a new industry because actually that was core to my job in investment banking. It was like all of a sudden we'd be coming on into a deal and it would, and I would have to get up the learning curve on a specific company, a specific industry and like very, very fast. And so I approached the opportunity uh, in film media the same way. It was like, I'm just going to read everything about, that I can about this and try to figure out, you know, how the industry works and who the players are and the competitive landscape. And, and actually, so the skills for investment banking enabled, I think, my, my learning in joining a new industry, except for it became more permanent than just a deal. It was actually like an operating company that was going to last a lot longer than just one transaction. Can you also touch on how you transitioned to your current firm? There are a lot of similarities between um, what you've told us about your career so far from like day one through now. I decided to found Al Ridge Group because I recognized the need for CFO and COO services uh, for early stage companies. A lot of companies can't quite afford a full-time person yet. And even if they do bring on a full-time person, they might not have the right experience. So I realized that there's a way to offer this service in a dynamic sort of on-demand way that aligns ourselves with our clients so that uh, we're viewed more as a partner than a vendor. Because at the end of the day, startups don't have a lot of resources and they, they certainly don't have a lot of time. And so it really comes down to making an impact with, with scarce resources. So we work right alongside the owners and their executive teams in a variety of industries. And we're delivering solutions, not just within finance and operations, but also across the broader company strategy, everything from business plans to strategic actions that might really accelerate the performance of, of companies. So we're really excited to do exactly that. So that's that's really cool that you found this um, gap or opportunity that is underserved or probably not even served at all. How did you actually start it? The actual nuts and bolts. I mean, the, the, the very first thing, I guess, is like you have an idea and the idea then starts to turn into an energy of some kind. Right. You start you know, thinking about it before you go to sleep and, and waking up, jumping out of bed, thinking about it. And and so the earliest stages of the idea start to gather momentum. And, and all of a sudden it's like, I need to create this company or else I'm going to have like this, again, this dissonance around like what, uh, what, what uh, isn't yet created. And, and so you get this, you know, for me, it was like, all right, well, I know how to, I've never founded a company until this point. And so learning about all of those earliest 
very, very earliest stage sort of administrative things, for example, like founding, you know, setting up the LLC and creating your own operating agreement and making the right decision in terms of the, the, the type of uh, financial structure or jurisdiction that you might want to set in. All these things, I had enough information from my time uh, as, an, as an operator, as a CFO, that a lot of these decisions I could make pretty quickly. Uh, but some of them I wasn't as familiar with, and I knew where I would get hung up. And I, but I also had this kind of uh, tool set for working through those those items uh, quickly. And I also knew that I didn't want any one point to hold up my progress. So even if the company wasn't, if I hadn't, you know, redrafted the entire operating agreement with exactly the way I wanted to look, it was like, well, don't let that hang up the the the, the business itself. And so from launching the company to getting you know the articles of incorporation to having an operating agreement and the whole thing set up it, it was only probably a few weeks process and you can use services like LegalZoom and and others that there are a lot of services out there now that make it really quite accessible in terms of both time cost and expertise for a few hundred dollars you can launch a company and just launching it itself can help add momentum to your vision um, because it makes it feel much more real instead of just an idea. And I think from there, you just build as, it, as with anything else. Every day, you add a little bit more to it, and the idea becomes, becomes reality. I remember when we were starting the podcast, when we had a logo, it seemed like much more legitimate than especially the logo that um, we had help designing on like a drawing app and not me in PowerPoint. Um, there are certain little things that all of a sudden you can go out and conquer the world. Exactly. We didn't go through the process of setting up a legal entity because we don't make any money. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, maybe it's, one day. As I said, don't let that get in the way of your progress. You don't, you know, you don't need a legal entity until you're making money, as you say, or you're trying to raise capital, or the founders yeah. want to, you know, be very careful about the the way they bring on more people or whatever it is. Don't let the administration get in the way of your progress, but also recognize that like at the end of the day, every company has this kind of 20% of things that just simply needs to be done. Uh, and that's fine. What has been the biggest difference so far between running your own company and when you, cause you were like early partner, a CFO before, so you were in leadership and making a lot of decisions, but what's been the big difference you think, or a couple differences? Yeah. So I think, I think the biggest difference is, well, there are a lot of differences, uh, frankly, but the, the biggest difference is probably structure. And what I mean by that is when you join any company, um, whether it's a, a large company like when I worked at the bank or a startup company that was very early stages, there is an element of structure, right? There's at least an idea. There's probably uh, MVP um, test product out there. Uh, of some kind. And, and so the company starts to congeal around some vision that the co-founding team, you know, the founding team has, and that brings an element of structure, right? When you found your own company, you don't have that. You are the structure. The beauty of that is that you can create the structure that matches your vision. But the challenge is, is that you're, there's a, there's a blank piece of paper in front of you and you have to basically build that structure in a way that matches not only your vision, but also matches like what's going to drive this company forward and, and hold yourself to, to that account. Because when you're a sole founder, as I am, it's really just you. And, and so you can bring, you can hire people and you can bring on uh, other folks that become executives or principals. But at the end of the day, a lot of the structure around the business is dependent on your own standards and then, and then your willingness to hold yourself to those standards. Um, so I think that's, that's a key thing. I mean, the, there might be an analogy that you could use around the builder of a boat the rower of the boat 
and the navigator of the boat all at the same time. It feels like that because um, it's not just when you, it's not like you get plugged in as just the rower. And, you know, when, you, when, when I was the CFO of a company, the earliest stages, the very earliest until we became much more strategic about navigation and everything else was row. You just, you just like, this is where we're going. You just row. And then over time you, you start, um, you know, reshifting the, where, where you're going. And, and, and that, and that's, that's an exciting, um, an, an important time, but when you first start, it's all of those things and it's on one person's back and it's yours. And, and that could be very challenging. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, my role as an operator has been primarily inward oriented. And, and so what I mean is as a CFO, I basically run the machine uh, or I help run the machine to a large extent from the inside. Uh, but as a CEO of a, of a new company, I'm running the company primarily from the outside. And so it's about sales and marketing and it's basically telling the world about your vision as opposed to just building it from the inside and, and accelerating a, a growth for someone else to have that function. So I think that's that's a key difference. And frankly, it's it's been a really good uh, new challenge for me as, a, as a, an executive to have that experience of, of a different side of, of the team, really. The one thing that we have talked a lot about on our podcast and has come up in pretty much every conversation with everyone we've interviewed is around the concept of risk taking. And I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier when we were talking. And I'm curious your perspective in the startup venture world, you have this concept maybe of risk in a financial perspective sometimes. Then there's also this concept of risk in terms of your career or like the decisions you make in terms of making a jump to something new and you're not sure exactly what this next job or this thing is going to look like. But in that sort of in that world of something being risky because you don't have a lot of answers in the beginning. So how do you think about that from the career perspective? Yeah, so I think um, the idea of managing risk from a financial perspective is, in fact, I think quite different than from a career perspective. And as you rightly point out, from a from financial perspective, it's usually about you're, you're weighing the, the the profit or loss of a given opportunity, right? I think in terms of your career, it's it's actually I associate managing risk with managing fear. I think they're pretty similar. I think that like when when someone says managing risk in your career, I I, I immediately think of you're managing your fear. And so you have to realize that sometimes that, that that is the same thing. And in fact, you should listen to it because when I fear something in terms of my career, it usually means that I should pay attention to that and figure out what, what's that all about? Am I fearful because I'm, I'm scared of failing? Am I fearful because um, I don't have the skill set to do that thing and I'm worried that it's not going to look good for me or it's not going to be good for my trajectory or it's the wrong decision? Um, but in reality, I think most times the fear is actually an energy building building up within you to uh, move toward a great uh, growth opportunity for yourself. So I think the fear uh, is something that you, you should pay attention to and you should explore and you should think carefully about so that you don't confuse it with a, a financial risk. To your point, I do think it's important to be realistic and practical about your life you know, position, right? Like not everyone is, it's not as if you can say there's no fear or risk with taking this job because look, there's, there's financial realities in my world. I have a mortgage, I have kids in college or whatever it is. And all of those things are very well and good to, to pay attention to. And I think they're important, but you also have to think that the, the fear orientation is, is usually around survival. And the reality is, is like, if things don't work out, can you survive? And probably the answer is yes. And you have to ultimately bet on yourself and say, look, if I fall flat on my face and this really doesn't work, 
which is frankly, that's a question I've asked myself multiple times, including when I left my job in London. It was like, if this really does not work and I get to LA and things are a disaster and, and it's like uh, nothing worked out as planned, am I going to be foolish for having given up that job? And then am I going to be like on the streets without income and you know feeling a little bit uh, silly? Um, I think what I was willing to do is say, well, that's pretty unlikely. And if it did happen, I'm going to be fine. I'll land on my feet. And, and um, the, at a minimum, I'll have a good story. And ideally, uh, there'll be some element of success that I can lean on. And so that's that's really the way I think about it. I think and getting through each of those walls of fear gives you more confidence because then that the, there, there will be another fear wall ahead. You just have a better, I think, ability to, to sort of jump over it and be like, well, don't I know how to handle this one. I can I can get over it and, and understand that this is a growth opportunity for me. Yeah, I think I can't remember where I heard this, but these tougher decisions, it's like a muscle you have to work. And the more opportunities you have to take on something that seems scary and do it and conquer it, that it's working a muscle and it gets a little stronger every time. It's not like you have to start from scratch the next time. No, I think that's right. And the reality is, is that you're not alone with the, with those feelings, right? It's like when I reflected on the kind of uh, not just career I wanted to have, but the kind of person I wanted to be, I thought about certain people in my life that inspired me. And so, for example, like my parents and my dad, when, when he was an entrepreneur, it's like he had, I remember him explaining to me a very kind of fearful, well, not fearful for him, but for his family, looking at the, the initial move he made to become an entrepreneur, they were like, well, you're foolish. I mean, this is you, you've got a great job and why would you leave that? And there's a certain fear orientation to that change when people think that there's something, there's some unknowns that, that you can't quite quantify and therefore it's, it's scary. But if you think about the greatest success stories in, in the world of entrepreneurs or, or, or startups, frankly, is um, all of the founders... Uh, or the early partners took on risk. I mean, that's just part of it. I mean, that's that's really just part of the equation of of these early stage companies is you're taking on an element of risk, and for the ones that work, you get a you get a commensurate return, right? The risk return is sort of there, and it's more than just financial. There's return from a, a skills perspective, from a growth perspective, from an independence perspective, lifestyle, all kinds of things that are valuable. But you do take an element of risk to get there, and you have to be willing to basically take the plunge uh, as opposed to, I think a lot of people, including myself for some time, feel in a way that it's irreversible, but I just, in my experience, that's not true. So it's doable. And now that you've assuaged all of our fears and concerns about this scary diving into the deep end sort of situation, um, I, I think it's interesting that your current firm is an organization that's going to provide advice to other firms that are looking to start themselves up and um, create a gap filler for whatever the opportunities are. What sort of advice would you give someone who's looking to start their own company? So I think the one of the most important pieces of starting a company is is essentially having have to have identified a need that you think you can solve. Right. So whether you call it a problem or a need or an itch, um, the idea is that you, you have an understanding of what other people need and want. And if you don't quite understand it, you should figure that out, because if there are no customers, I'm not talking about a thousand customers, I'm talking about one or five or ten customers. If you could find those people and realize that you can solve their problems, then you're onto something. And so the first thing is like understanding the market and what they want, customers uh, want or need. 
sometimes they don't exactly know. And there've been a lot of examples of that in the past, but you have to be, you have to have an insight that suggests you, you can empathize with your customers who are going to be hugely dependent on, or you're going to be very dependent on, on them buying into your, your product or service. So that's, that's one. I think two is start niche and start and stay in your lane. So you don't want to try to be everything to everyone. I think that's a, a sure way to probably dilute the value you're trying to create and, and, and potentially fail in, in doing so. So it's much better to focus on something very small where you, you can have a handful of early customers or fans, essentially, that are like super fans. I mean, they, they absolutely love what you're doing. And that's where you can then grow, you can grow from there, as opposed to just being like, we have 15 services and we're going to attack every element of every business. It's like, well, no, this is the one or these are the one or two things we do exceptionally well. And you're going to be so happy as a customer, you're going to tell your friends. And if you could focus on that orientation as a founder, I think you'll find your way to a growth oriented company. Michelle, we had heard similar advice from Nikki when we interviewed her same idea. You cannot be everything to everyone. We had this conversation with the podcast. How do we focus, but oh, we don't want to alienate anybody or whatever. And I think um, it's just been good to continue to hear that advice out loud from many different people. So definitely. Thank I, you. I think in my experience, I think the, the direction of the, of the company from the beginning should be about other people's problems as much and hopefully you you can, you can identify with what that problem is because you've experienced it so uh, for you ladies who've started this podcast are essentially scratching your itch these are questions that you have and that you're curious in so surely at, at a minimum there's four of you that that find value in it and, and likely well more than likely for, for sure there are many people out there that will also find value in that well, if you have any parting words of wisdom, advice you want to share, you are welcome to do so. Yeah, I think the idea that helped drive some of these major kind of career decisions was that success is essentially on the other side of early setbacks, failures, and fears. If you have an itch to start something, to join something that isn't necessarily stable or safe, then spend a lot of time thinking about that, but not too much time that you don't do it. Spend enough time to say, there's, there's something here and I should... I should probably go for it and then build a plan to do it. Um, because one of the things we didn't touch on, which was true, is that um, there was a point where I put a date in my calendar and I said, by December 1st, 2014, I'm going to have made a decision as to getting into startup world. And on December 1st, 2014, I put in my two weeks notice. Wow. So it, it, you have to be able to envision that life for yourself and then, and then take the plunge. This has truly been very inspirational. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. When we decide to monetize this podcast or some sort of opportunity, you'll be one of our first calls, if not the first. Mm -hmm. um, it was so great to hear from you. It was a pleasure chatting. I appreciate your time, Michelle and Kelsey. Thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please don't forget to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can also catch us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And also, also, don't forget to send us an email at fourofakindpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, please follow us on Instagram for all the latest updates. And we are, our, our Instagram is at fourofakindpodcast. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.